Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos, the first volume. And we're picking up this evening on page 243 uh, with number two, about midway down the page. And if you remember, we had been speaking about asceticism in particular and how one begins to take up the practice of things such as fasting, vigils, the things that are seen by the fathers as essential and struggling with, with the passions. And uh, we continue along that line of thought and then moving into the next hypothesis. Uh, in particular, they become very specific about the, the warring of the demons against those who engage in the spiritual life. And so the remainder of this hypothesis and the next are, are really quite beautiful and uh, very detailed in, in regards to uh, the nature of the spiritual spiritual battle. So ever so helpful. And again, it's one of those texts you read back and you think, gee, I wish I had read something like this 30 years ago uh, in terms of engaging in the spiritual battle. Uh, very insightful and very helpful. So again, on 243, paragraph two. Once upon a time, there was a young monk. When he would begin his services, he would be seized by cold and fever and be troubled by a severe headache. This monk would thus say to himself, I'm now sick and perhaps I will die shortly. So let me do my service before I die. He compelled himself with this thought and in this way would finish his service. But scarcely would he finish praying than the fever and the headache ceased. However, when the time came for the next service, his ordeal would begin again. But since the monk had his attention directed toward this purpose, he would simply force himself to do his service. After a short time, by his persistence and patience, he was delivered from the warfare with God's help. So an interesting little story. And uh, it's amazing how often this comes up, uh, both with, in terms of the feeling of sickness, you know, when it comes time for prayer, it's like, oh, I just don't feel so well, or I have a headache, or fatigue is another one. I mean, it's amazing how consistent that can be. All of a sudden, one's exhausted, and the moment you begin to enter into prayer, you start to nod off, and it becomes almost impossible uh, to hold oneself up. And uh, so it's interesting to hear these stories from the fathers to say, you know, certainly at times this can be from natural fatigue uh, due to, you know, human weakness. And, you know, sometimes we overdo it or lack sleep and or we do get sick. Uh, but one of the ways that we could be dissuaded from prayer is exactly what is described here. You know, the, the feeling of sickness or feeling weighed down. Uh, and uh, sometimes the thoughts are not dealt with in the way that this monk dealt with them, which was to say, let me at least get through the service and to pray to do that, and then was able to persevere until uh, he had finished it. Often when we have this feeling, we will uh, you know, either allow ourselves to go to bed or let go of the service, you know, allowing this to be an excuse for us. And uh, sickness can be difficult that way. Uh, you know, I think especially these days, uh, because we have a lot to distract our attention off of the illness. And so often we will turn to, to things uh, rather than to, to prayer and to remain praying uh, during that time of illness, especially for the, the capacity to endure it and to be able to endure it in a good spirit or even joyfully. Uh, and, uh, and so this is a story for us to start with here this, this evening. Uh, Bridget says, hold on for one second. Somebody has their microphone on, if uh, you could mute that. Okay, very good. Uh, acedia, I'm infected with it these days, Bridget. Yes, you know, this kind of, uh, Again, weighed down feeling or uh, almost slothfulness in regards to prayer that can uh, really overcome us and make prayer seem to be uh, something that we want to avoid altogether. Uh, often this goes along with kind of despondency and, uh, and then eventually can overcome us altogether with 
uh, uh, with a kind of despair. And one of the ways to make our way through it is exactly how the the young monk did here, was, which is simply to force himself to do what he felt too fatigued or too sick to do. And so enduring this period of acedia or uh, fatigue, sickness, uh, despondency by simply making our way through it, not allowing the value of our prayer to depend upon our feelings, physical or emotional. And uh, because this can be one of the tricks of the evil one uh, to slip us up or to let us or lead us to let off of our prayer. And, you know, of course, again, you know, there are times where we le legitimately get sick. So I'm not trying to say that every time this is true, but often I think the more we enter into prayer, the more frequent this kind of experience becomes. And so to fight that battle to, to the point that the evil one lets off often is simply by forcing ourselves to continue in the prayer until we come out the other side of it. And once he sees that we're no longer dissuaded from prayer in that regard, well, the, the temptations will begin to cease. Any thoughts or comments on this? So very difficult. So it's a good paragraph to highlight, uh, to go back to, especially when one's struggling with it. Number three, an elder once visited Abba Achilles and saw him spitting blood from his mouth. So he asked him, what is that, Abba? It's a word of a brother who grieved me, he replied. I struggled not to reveal this bitter word, and I besought God to take the warfare away from me. This word became blood in my mouth, which I then spat out. Afterwards, I felt relief and forgot my distress. Curious little story. Uh, a word that was spoken to him by another, a bitter word that uh, he was struggling with, as we often do when somebody says something to us that is mean or hurtful, we will often hold on to it in our mind or want to speak it to another to tell them about it. And so he asked the Lord to relieve him from the struggle. And so it becomes this physical object you know, blood and, and, you know, blood is symbol of life and uh, he spits the, the life, if you will, or the, better maybe the death of this bitter word out of his mouth, you know, and uh, so again, a very, you know, somewhat graphic, but powerful image here in terms of the, the nature of the spiritual battle that uh, how we can cling to the things that, others say or do to us, and it can turn bitter within us, especially when we want to speak what they've done uh, to us, to others indiscriminately, not, you know, sort of talking to a spiritual director or getting spiritual counsel or within the confessional, but to uh, unburden ourselves by talking to others, you know, blowing off steam, as it were. And uh, this is often a temptation. And I, I think that's one of the excuses that we use, blowing off steam. We want to relieve the tension that exists within us rather than to struggle in the way that this monk did, which was not allow himself to, to vent. Uh, but this left him certainly with this um, enduring kind of spiritual battle to the point that he tasted the bitterness of that whatever hateful word it was within his own mouth. Anthony, why can't we just decide not to let it bother us? Why does it cling? It's an interesting question. And actually, going through the next hypothesis, it's dealt with very directly in, in the sense that providentially, uh, it, it always allowed because of God that he sees what it is each individual soul can endure and endure for the sake of growth in the virtue and strength and endurance and courage in doing battle with the passions. So we're allowed to experience the temptation, the warfare, because the warfare strengthens the soul. And there's a story in the next hypothesis about 
uh, a brother coming to one of the elders telling him that he knew this kind of peace within his heart that he you know had no you know he was not struggling with any passions and the elder tells him to ask god to draw him back into the the warfare uh because of the distinct value of it and it's a hard thing because we we often feel the weight of that warfare and we want to be relieved of it is our initial experience rather than fight against it through prayer through the ascetic practices and through endurance and i think when we have this kind of clarity about it that god in his wisdom is never going to allow us to experience it might be incredibly weighty but nothing beyond the 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 grace that he gives us to persevere through it and this is something that we often lose sight of that uh if we hold fast to him and if we humble ourselves before him cling to him in prayer then we are are brought through it whatever it might be and so part of it is to teach us to war to do battle but also it is to teach us the value of of humility of clinging to god and his grace in the face of it and that that battle that temptation and the humility that it fosters within us is greater than being free and what we would experience in being free from the temptations and the passions and you know at times i think we can get even resentful you know, toward toward god about it that it it's you know when you're in battle for a long period of time and struggle for a long period of time uh we can feel like god has abandoned us especially when it really hits in our weak spot and uh, even when we've been struggling for years we all have sort of chinks in the armor and the evil one knows the real place to go and uh and if we find ourselves uh embattled not only with the temptation but wanting to just give up we're so tired of it and uh in fact one of the monks asked why do all these people in the world not fall like we do here we're fighting we're you know we've really our life is incredibly difficult we're fasting you know we're not giving ourselves over to worldly pleasures at all and here we're being we're in, you know we're being knocked down and we have to drag ourselves up every single day and those in the world you know don't seem to be harassed it and they seem more joyful you know and and you know the response of the elder is that uh it's because once they knock they they're knocked down they don't get up and they have no knowledge of having even fallen and so they do not feel the weight and the burden of that whereas the path of the monk is to fight to get struck struggle to get knocked down and then to force oneself to get back up again and and turn to god and it's in this you know faithful war warring against the evil one that we uh manifest our faith in god our trust in his mercy his grace and we show our love for him by this willingness uh to to get up over and over again even if it's every single day Climacus who we're reading now on Wednesdays says you know even if we were to fall every single day and get up every single day then our our guardian angel looks upon us with joy that because we didn't give up you know we're we're we've turned to god we seek his mercy and we're right back into the battle we jump right back into the fray and so the evil one's not going to think twice about those who have no 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 knowledge or sense of even having fallen in so many ways they're already in his grip and uh so to be constantly harassing them isn't a necessity there is even a point in here and we'll come across it where he describes those who freely give themselves over to the temptations and uh who eventually become uh they join themselves with the evil one they become spies against their former compatriots 
you know, in their embrace of the sin and, uh, and you know, become his vehicles of drawing others into sin. And it's sort of an interesting thing because there, it shows us there's no, again, passive position. There's no Switzerland, in other words, in the spiritual battle, battle no neutral territory. You know, we're warring or we're not, or we're not you know, or we've given ourselves over. Okay. Eric. Uh, so what do we do when we're in a position where we've, we've fought a really hard battle for a long period of time? Um, we've overcome. Uh, we're living a life which, as far as we can tell, is a virtuous life. Um, and we're no longer harassed by the enemy. And we're in a position where we're like, okay, what's going on? Why am I not being harassed by the enemy? Why is there no spiritual warfare going on? Hmm. Um, and we're, again, not, uh, not a, a aware of, um, of succumbing to temptation or, or, or whatever. What kind of steps can we take to um, discern what's, what's going on and where to go from there? Right. Great question. And I think the first thing to do is exactly what you just described is this kind of suspicion, you know, that if one is not embattled in any way, then to scrutinize one's own heart and to be, in a sense, ever more vigilant. You know, sometimes the temptations will wane or the evil one will pull back and not attack us. Uh, in certain areas, waiting patiently, uh, you know, uh, biding his time, as it were, and sometimes leading us to that position where we grow overly confident, you know, again, experience this kind of peace, uh, and we're not being embattled. And in subtle ways, we then can begin to either to lose sight of God and, and this sense of needing to cling to him, to be calling out to him constantly. And again, that can be subtle and it can develop gradually over time too, in the, in the sense of this uh, loss of vigilance. And, uh, and, and so again, the evil one, often with certain individuals will do this purposely uh, to set up for a greater fall that is more devastating that can end up destroying a person's will and desire for God altogether, uh, you know, that will wreck, in a, you know, their, their life in some fashion. And, uh, uh, and so this is why you have somebody like St. Isaac the Syrian saying, you know, there's no rest until we enter the grave, that no matter how far one has progressed in the spiritual life, no matter how virtuous, that we have to realize that we're not impervious to the evil one's attacks, that he's unresting, that there's a knowledge there of our, our, of our habits, our actions, our you know, subtle forms of laziness or negligence, as well as where our strengths are. And uh, so we have to be every bit of vigilant, as vigilant as well. And, you know, it's often been said that, you know, it's those who are closest to Christ that often become his greatest betrayers, you know, that they, they've been drawn into this intimacy with him and, uh, and yet are pulled into, you know, some self-deceit or the deceit of the evil one and then turn away in this kind of grave way. All right, number four, a monk was hungry from the morning and he fought against the thought of not eating until the third hour came. When the third hour arrived, he strove again not to eat until the sixth hour came. And when the sixth hour arrived, he moistened his rusk and said to him, his mind, let us wait until the ninth hour. When the ninth hour came, he prayed. Then he saw a satanic energy coming out like smoke from his handicraft and rising up into the air. 
His hunger then ceased at once. So interesting, you know, we've talked before about the practice of regular fasting and the, the ninth hour would be typically when it would be broken, which would be mid-afternoon, like three in the afternoon. And so one would eat then and then not eat again until the next day at the same same hour. And, uh, and so here he's training himself and doing battle. And when he feels those hunger pangs come on, you know, he's, you know, so, well, let's see if we can make it to the, you know, the, the sixth hour. And, uh, and then the same thing, you know, to the ninth hour. And it's when he's made it to that point when he's, you know, struggled against his own, you know, bodily weakness, but perhaps temptation to break the fast that he sees a manifestation of the, the evil one there, you know, seeking to uh, draw him uh, uh, away from the practice. And it was interesting how it was described here. Let me just go back to that for one, one moment, because it was sort of un, unusual. Uh, a satanic energy coming out like smoke from his handicraft and rising up into the air. So his in, engagement in this prayerful kind of work, labor with his hands, you know, of engaging in his prayer with this real kind of attentiveness. And we had a talk this weekend uh, on the Jesus prayer. And Ren, uh, I don't know if you want to add to this at all, you know, about the idea of making a prayer rope while praying it, that, you know, the monks would, you know, often tie and untie knots you know, as, as part of their, their prayer being, and part of being attentive and staying focused. And, uh, and so it sounds as though this is sort of what he was doing in order to maintain his focus where it needed to be rather than on his hunger. And the same can be true, I think, in terms of any temptation that we might experience to be engaged in using the chalky, the prayer rope, you know, to help in whatever way we can uh, to to stay focused upon Lord, upon the Lord, and uh, like Ren made reference to one of the more modern saints of the East talking about that. You know, each person should learn to make a prayer rope and to learn this art and be praying it while they're making it. And that there was this real connection between the praying and the and the work itself of making the prayer rope in terms of staying focused. Uh, that sometimes we hear of them making mats and things like that. But in I think one of the footnotes that she found in a text is that right, Ren? Uh, one of the footnotes that she found in a text was that it was more of like making a prayer rope out of this kind of material. Is that correct? Ren, are you there? You awake? Perhaps she'll type something in a little bit later. Okay. Any thoughts on this last paragraph? Okay. Number five. For the sake of asceticism, an elder imposed a condition on himself of not drinking water for 40 days. Although it was hot at times and he was exceedingly bothered by thirst, he washed his jug and filled it with water, placing it opposite himself. Why are you doing this? The brother asked him. In order to endure more, replied the elder, so that by adding to the martyrdom of thirst, the sight of water, but not drinking it, I may in this way receive greater reward from God. So, you know, this kind of stretching of oneself in the ascetic practice um, that, you know, certainly this wouldn't be for beginners, I think, you know, in the sense of putting themselves to the test. Uh, but I think in the spiritual life, a deepening of the of asceticism over the course of time is what we would seek to take place, not in the sense that we would take more on ourselves, but that we would, again, seek to enter into it with greater perfection. And so this is what the monk is seeking 
you know, to be able to endure the temptation, you know, to break the fast, uh, which he had embraced, which was a great one, a very difficult one, which I would not recommend giving up water for 40 days, but unless you're allowed to drink coffee, which has some water in it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, number six. An elder said, the reason why we do not make progress and are not aware of our real spiritual condition is that we do not have patience in the work that we began, but wish to acquire virtue without effort. We are changeable and also move around easily, going from place to place without difficulty, because we think it possible, it is possible to find some place where the devil does not exist. So, first of all, a lot, a lack of patience that, you know, we are often most frustrated, I think, with our own weaknesses and the experience of our own poverty. And the little story I told you earlier about the, the monk complaining about those in the world not having this kind of frustration. And, uh, and so when we begin to experience it, uh, if we don't have this kind of endurance or patience that he's talking about, we will often slip away from the practice. We'll give up. And so one of the reasons we uh, you know, don't make progress or aren't aware of where we really are is that we give up and we give up without a fight or we're changeable, you know, that we will leave circumstances that are putting us to the test. Uh, and, you know, seeking to get away from them, turning the temptation or the trial or the difficulty itself into an evil and fleeing from it, thinking that we're fleeing from the evil one himself. Uh, but there's no doing so. And then certainly wherever we go, we take our, ourselves anyways with our same weakness and vulnerabilities. So uh, it's not even the the fact that the evil one doesn't follow us, it's just we follow ourselves. We can't get, get away from ourselves in that regard. Any thoughts, comments? Number seven. The same elder said, if a monk works hard for a few days and is negligent afterwards, and works again and is again negligent, this monk never accomplishes anything, nor does he acquire patience. So fits and starts, you know, that we can take up spiritual practices with a kind of zeal and then let off and sort of become impatient and negligent and then sort of go through the whole cycle again. And again, this shows us the importance of persevering through the times in our spiritual life when we have no desire for it or when it is very difficult. And certainly when inwardly we feel, you know, ourselves struggling and simply want that feeling to cease, you know, we will vacillate back and forth like this. And it can impede our, our progress, not so much the falls, you know, it's more this spirit within us that, you know, leads us to stop again, to stop warring and to stop striving. A person who falls every single day can still be striving and still want to be free of the passions and might weaken before them, but again, step back into the fray, not necessarily out of negligence. Letter H from St. Ephraim the Syrian. My beloved, gather instruction from thy youth up, and so shalt thou find wisdom until thine old age. Sirach 618. From your youth, you should sow the seeds of virtue in the field of your soul, taking care lest thorns sprout up and grow up in it, as it were, as it as if it were dry land produce good fruit in it, and glorify him who gives you strength. So we, 
you know, see the importance of early instruction and certainly, you know, the, of the parents here, you know, that learning from an early age, uh, developing a consciousness about, of the value of the spiritual life and of entering into the spiritual battle, beginning uh, certain practices very early, uh, it all can lead to something that is enduring and that strengthens one over the course of life. And so if we, we don't pick up the habit of virtue or piety, you know, very early on, it can be very uh, difficult to cultivate it later in, in, in our, and in when we're older, because we've cultivated other habits, you know, of ne negligence or of giving our attention over to the things of this world. And when those, once those are deeply ingrained, uh, they're very difficult to replace. But, you know, habits formed early can be something enduring and help uh, those, even when they, people, when, when they go through struggles at certain ages in their life to, even if they sort of fall away, they can return back to what they had fostered very early on. I often think of uh, athletes, you know, if, if you're once in really good shape and, you know, that you were fit and you lifted weights and you ran and, uh, there's sort of regaining that after you've stepped away from it for, for a while is easier, you know, that you step back into that discipline you, you have within your mind, even if you're not fully conscious of it, the memory of being healthy and fit and strong. And whereas a person who's never exercised a day in their whole life, <laughs> uh, it's much harder and, uh, you know, they lack that experience, the taste of being fit, uh, but also sort of the, the natural abilities to do that well, the coordination they will even lack, you know, put them out on a baseball field or something like that where they have to swing a bat and they've never done it before. You know, they're usually holding the bat the wrong way and have this really awkward swing or they run with their arms flailing all over the place. And so they, they can't do it. And so, you know, in a very similar way in the spiritual life and engaging in this spiritual battle, exercising the faith that if we are taught early, uh, then these things become more natural to us. And we, we can we can enter back into them again. Any thoughts or comments? I often have to remind, you know, parents often become very disturbed, especially when their kids go to high school and they come under the influence of others or go to college. And there's a period of time where you know, they move away from the practice of the faith that was, uh, you know, that existed within the household. And it's often, you know, there can be a sort of uh, a separation there that takes place from one's parents while you move to a greater independence, you know, sort of developing a kind of self-identity. And part of that is sort of this pull away from thinking about things or doing things in the way that your parents do them. And uh, that's where campus ministry can be so important, not to sort of uh, put out an advertisement here for my own work, but uh, it can be so important, especially if it's done well, because it, usually at that point, they're being formed in so many different ways by the university culture. And, but it's at this point that uh, there's an opportunity for them to embrace their faith as adults to take hold of it for themselves not simply because their parents are doing it or this is what the parents the pattern that they set in the house but because they desire it for themselves and come to see it for themselves and so if there's good formation again then sometimes that happens with greater ease letter i from abba isaac the syrian the basis of all good things, the liberation of the soul from the captivity of the enemy, 
and the road that leads to light and life are attained by two following means, by settling steadfastly in a single place and always fasting. That is by regulating your life wisely and prudently, practicing restraint of the flesh and remaining in a quiet place. Let your mind be occupied ceaselessly with God and meditation upon him. He who puts these two rules into practice will make great progress and set out henceforth to attain all the virtues. So stilling the mind and the heart by remaining where one is and allowing oneself self to become focused upon what is going on interiorly, like external stability often will help create internal stability. And so to remain where one is and not to, to leave uh, a place of stillness uh, where the virtues can be cultivated and then not to let go of the one of the fundamental uh, ascetical practices, which is fasting, you know, that which again humbles the body and the mind uh, weakens the passions for us. And when we do flit around or where we are changing settings, then maintaining that regularity uh, internally as well as in terms of one's spiritual disciplines becomes much more difficult. And you know, the monk who's constantly on the road is going, going to have a hard time living the life of a monk. And so this is why they held in disdain that distinction, that certain distinct kind of monk who would travel, basically spend his life traveling from monastery to monastery, you know, living off the hospitality of certain communities. But you know, he's not going to be able to foster certain virtues in doing that. A cowardly man means one who suffers from two diseases, a lack of faith and an inordinate love for his body. It is clear that he who despises these things believes wholeheartedly in God and awaits things to come, eternal life. Boldness of heart and contempt for dangers derives from one of the following two attitudes, either from hard-heartedness or from great faith in God. However, hard-heartedness is accompanied by pride, while faith is accompanied by humility of heart. So two little, you know, two little interesting parts here. Certainly, you know, a, a kind of cowardice, cowardice is uh, a lack of, of, of faith, you know, when things become sort of dark and difficult, uh, but also this over-concern with the body and one's physical health. Uh, these things prevent us certainly from entering into the spiritual battle. And he, he makes this important little distinction at the end. You know, there can be those who are hard-hearted, who just kind of have a hatred for the world and for themselves, but it's not rooted in this humility, this acknowledgement of one's dependence upon God. And... Uh, and so the disdain for those things isn't because of the love for something greater. The disdain simply arises out of, of a heart that has grown hardened not only uh, to God, but to the, the beauty of the things uh, of this world or what it is that we can, who, what it is and who, who it is really we can become by, by the grace of God. And so more like, you know, Stoics, you know, would be a good example of this, you know, this kind of disdain for the things of this world in order not to be moved by them. You know, this isn't necessarily rooted in a faith in God, more stubbornness. Any thoughts about this hypothesis at all before moving on to the next? Okay, so we've been set up pretty well in terms of understanding sort of the basic elements of the ascetic life. 
Uh, oh, Anthony does put a note here on culture for part G, paragraph four, rusk and Italian cooking are twice baked circular loaves of bread. That's helpful. I didn't have an opportunity, thank you, to look that up. They can be stored for several months to eat, first moisten under water, then top with a spread or cold cuts. I love them with an eggplant and olive mixture spread like eggplant caponata on top. <laughs> that's great. Uh, but yeah, that's really fascinating because you think if you're living in the desert, you would need something like that that would last and be able to last for months and that you could simply dip in water. And it's funny, I've seen that in movies about monks too and, and doing that. And was you know sort of wondering like that? Are they just eating stale bread, or was it made in a certain way to to last and not go moldy? Okay. So hypothesis twenty nine uh, gets into uh, the the furious nature of the warfare that when a person begins to engage in the spiritual life. As we've mentioned before, the uh, the attack becomes even greater. You know that the evil one uh, brings on greater and greater temptations, and tries to weaken the strength of the faithful soul. And so we begin with the Gerontikon. One of the fathers recounts that at one time there lived an industrious monk who was very attentive to his conduct. However, it happened that for a short time he neglected his spiritual duties. But he immediately realized his mistake and reproving himself said, my soul, how long will you neglect your salvation and not fear the just judgment of God, lest your end should come while you're being negligent, in which case you will be handed over to eternal punishment. With these words to himself, he awakened his soul again from negligence to perform the commandments of God. Well, then one day at the, same, at the time when he was doing his service, the demons came and bothered him with some disturbance. The monk then said to them, how long are you going to harass me? Are you not satisfied with the negligence that I showed previously? When you were in a state of negligence, the demons told him, we had no interest in you. But as soon as you rose up against us, we rose up against you. No sooner had the monk heard these things from the demons than he persevered still more intensely and carrying out the commandments of God, making progress in virtue by the grace of Christ. So, you know, very clear from the get-go that, you know, negligence, once they see a move to negligence, then the temptations let up. It's only, again, when they see a person warring or when they do get back up with courage and a spirit of repentance, of humility, then the attack becomes greater. And I can't emphasize enough how important this is in the spiritual struggle, uh, especially when, when those are beginning and maybe where there hasn't really been an opportunity for formation at all and have just been subjected you know, to everything within the world. and passions, you know, some passions having a great grip, it can be very discouraging uh, once they take up the life of prayer. And, you know, even in small, modest measure, then to find themselves afflicted. And often the refrain is, you know, I did better when I, you know, had moved away from the faith or when I was, while I was doing nothing before I started praying. And, uh, you know, it's true. You know, if, if the evil one is not going to pay any attention to you because you're no threat and you aren't embracing the grace of God, then things can go easier for you. And you're not going to be disturbed. Your conscience is not going to rebuke you. And, uh, and so really in spiritual counsel, that we give to others, our children, our friends, or if one is a spiritual director, it has to be consistent in this regard. So a person doesn't fall into despair and does not give up. That you know, part of that warfare is showing that you are entering into the spiritual battle. 
some of it can come through negligence. You know, I think if we indiscriminately give ourselves over to certain things that give rise to certain passions, but really to feel oneself warred against is often a sign that there is a kind of striving going on or a deep desire for God uh, in the face of one's own poverty. And if they can lead us into despondency and despair, you know, that's a victory uh, on, on their end. Number two, an elder related that one time a certain monk who lived in Egypt was walking along the road. When darkness fell, he went into a tomb to sleep since it was cold. At that moment, two demons were passing by, and one said to the other, do you see what boldness this monk has, since he is even sleeping in a tomb? But come, let us annoy him. Why should we annoy him, replied the other. He is ours, since he does what we want, eating, drinking, reproaching others, and neglecting his services. Why, then, should we dally with him? Let us go and torment others, who grieve us and war against us night and day with prayer and the rest of their ascetic practices. So even when they have one where they want him seemingly, uh, you know, where he's in their territory, as it were, let us go annoy him, terrify him in this, you know, place of the dead. And, uh, and, the other demon says, you know, no, you know what, why, why would we waste our energy when in all these other areas of his life, uh, you know, he's not engaging in the ascetic life at all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, within the spiritual life, we, we tend to make the demons something unreal and, you know, fantasy, imagination. And scaring, you know, people in places like this cemetery or, you know, in the dark of night. And it's, you know, it's, it's a distraction from where the real battle is taking place. You know, often within one's heart and the struggle, again, you know, with negligence and holding on to, to one's disciplines. And number three, an elder said, oh man, if you wish to live by the law of God, you will find the lawgiver himself to be your helper. But if you willingly decide to disobey the commandments of God, you will find the devil hastening your fall. In another case, the same elder said, act with good intention and you will receive strength from God. So God is going to be our greatest helper. And if our intentions are where they need to be, uh, even if we are weak in so many different ways, if our intention is to do the will of God, to fill, fulfill the commandments, God is going to be there strengthening us. And we need to have no anxiety about that. It's only when you know, we deliberately uh, step away from the commandments and neglect them that we hasten, as it were, our own fall, and we place ourselves into the hands of the evil one. Eric. I've heard it said that, um, if you're familiar with the doctrine, I mean, I know you are, Father, of the doctrine of theosis, of becoming like God through um, perseverance and virtue, uh, there is also a an opposite effect of um, demonosis, so to speak, um, where you become like the demons, the more you accept the, you know, obey the word of the demons and, um, and, and, and sin, you become more and more like the demons. Mm -hmm. uh, that, this uh, passage reminded me of that particular principle. Right. Yeah. When we become disobedient, Instead of the obedient one is so often referred to as a confessor of the faith, because in their obedience, they are so conformed to Christ that they bear witness to, to Christ and what was so true of him that he was obedient to the Father's will above all things, 
even to death. And so the disobedient one becomes the confessor, not of faith, but of, of a lack of faith. And as, as you describe it, you know, they take on and are conformed more to the demons and the mindset of the demons, in particular Satan himself. You know, this disobedient spirit uh, falling, you know, this is, and, you know, they say this about theology as well. You know, the theology that doesn't arise out of the spirit of obedience and purity of heart is demonic theology. And, and so when we simply do something, you know, out of our own will or what we want out of curiosity or of too great of a trust, I think, in our own capacity to see and understand the truth outside of that relationship with God, then it's going to distort what it is that we see. And so there's a real danger uh, in engaging in this kind of theologizing outside of the spiritual life and one's relationship with God. Because then one's, you know, understanding not only becomes distorted, but one's whole self. You know, in reading and thinking about the Jesus prayer again, you know, one of the authors says that, you know, we are transfigured, but when we call upon the name of Jesus, this name given by God himself, we are professing this fundamental and first creedal statement, Jesus Christ. You know, we are articulating that he is salvation. He is our savior. And that this name carries within it uh, the, the presence of God himself, that there's a sacramental quality to the name of Jesus. So to cry out, even the simplest of prayers uh, brings to us, makes present within us and to our hearts, the uh, not only Christ himself, but the fullness of the kingdom and the fullness of the scriptures and their essential simplicity and all the angels and saints become present within. And uh, this should change our perspective in terms of, of how it is that we approach God and thinking about the realities of God himself and the, the realities of the kingdom and what it is to live as a Christian that it always has to, to begin with God himself if it is to bear any fruit for ourselves or for others. From St. Ephraim, a brother should guard his heart and senses with every precaution because while we live this life, we are in a great war and the enemy rages above above all against those who struggle, running hither and thither, as Holy Scripture says, seeking whom he may devour. He must then offer stalwart resistance to his foe, calling on God as his ally. As for him who has made compromises with his passions, how will he war against them, since he has sold himself as a slave to pleasures, and with all eagerness pays taxes to the tyrant? Where there is enmity, there is also war. Where there is war, there is a struggle, there a struggle is waged. And where there is a struggle, crowns are offered. So, you know, very, you know, powerful imagery here. And I can't remember who said it, if it was Fulton Sheen, you know, those you know, who enter into the spiritual life, expecting there not to be, expecting salvation or transformation outside of a bloody war against sin are deluding themselves. That if anything, you know, we see in the life of Christ was exactly that, you know, as, uh, you know, he conquers in and through his obedience and his love of God and love of us. But there is this constant warfare, even, even unto death. And as we enter into the spiritual life, there has to be this same kind of spirit and expectation 
that you know we're not going to get out of this without get through this without a fight and without wounds and we have to expect that and with kind of courage continue to move move on even at times when we have been wounded deeply or you know where we failed deeply to again get up and as i've said to enter into the fray once more this whole kind of language of spiritual warfare i think has uh, it sort of disappeared i think in common discussion about the spiritual life you know one can talk a lot a lot about prayer and even about vice and virtue and a whole lot of things about the spiritual life, but not really to the extent of understanding the nature of that warfare and how it is to be engaged engaged in over time. If then anyone wishes to be freed from bitter slavery, let him undertake a war against the enemy. This is what the saints did. And after vanquishing the enemy, they were deemed worthy of heavenly good things. But perhaps someone will ask, if there is enmity against the passions, it is natural for war to occur there, as you say. How are we to look upon lovers of pleasure who fiercely beset by disgraceful passions are yet unable to change? I would respond to this. I do not believe, my beloved, that theirs is a struggle in accordance with virtue and a spirit of resistance against the tyrant. It is more likely that they have surrendered to the passion of voluptuousness to which they are enslaved and which besets them. This is why those who are so enslaved have not even the intention of rising up against the enemy. Indeed, there is no harmony among things in conflict. However, in the case of those who have handed themselves over to the will of the enemy and sold themselves to pleasures, how is it possible for theirs to be called a real war? If they are in conflict, this is not an, on account of their concern for virtue and their concern to confront the enemy, but comes from the cruelty of him who lures them into iniquity so that they will pay the customary tribute of sin and who does not allow them any respite from pursuing the most shameful desires and to which they willingly deliver themselves. For as it is written of him, of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. Those about whom we are speaking are not led by force without wishing it, but actually give tribute to fulfill the will of him who deceived them. Hence, when they accomplish the evil deed they aim at, they display no repentance and continence and take no precaution against falling into the same fault. So very powerful. Uh, boy, if this doesn't make you do some soul searching, I don't know what will. Uh, because, you know, basically he's saying that, you know, they're not really warring. And if they suffer, it's because the tyrant continues to, to draw them and make them willing to pay tribute to him by further sin. You know that they're his and to remain his you know they have to continue in that sin but it's it, they might feel terrible they might even experience a certain level of shame on a psychological level but they're not really warring they're not and their pain is not from a repentant heart or you know as a result of one who's engaged in the battle but has fallen not so, however, is the warfare of the real strugglers, for they fight back when they are warred against. When they are burning from evil, desire, from evil desire, they do not yield, but endure. When the occasion of sin is before them, they abhor it because of their fear of the Lord. If any of them falls for a moment, he quickly picks himself up again. From among men who have been taken captive by barbarians and are under the thumb of a tyrant, all those who rejoice at the success of the enemy by whom they have been captured gladly remain close to the foe without fetters and confinement and struggle for the victory of the enemy 
and in fact are used as spies to the detriment of their own compatriots. This is one of the most striking things that I've read about the, the spiritual battle itself. I mean, it's just, I think, incredibly challenging as it is insightful. And, you know, these Syrian writing, writers, Isaac and Ephraim, you know, just had this piercing uh, understanding of the nature of spiritual warfare. But it, isn't that incredible that they're, they're again, he, he keeps pushing it. They're not real strugglers. They experience, uh, you know, this desire for sin. And yet, in reality, they aren't battling, but they're under the thumb of the tyrant. And eventually, they, they become his servants. They join his forces. And, you know, maybe they're not fully conscious of the implications of what they're doing in life. But the reality of it is that that's what they've become. They've been drawn into this alliance by their freely giving themselves over to sin. Anthony. I think the concept of spiritual warfare highlights the difference between monergism, that all of salvation is God's work and we contribute nothing, and synergy that we are required to work with God's work in our salvation. At least that is my experience of having been in a monergist tradition and talking with friends still in that tradition. And that monergism formed our American culture. It's like the way of thinking about God neutralizes the believer in that tradition against the thought of considering spiritual warfare. It is in a way very hard to be Catholic. That's right, and you know, I find in our day, there's this really quick movement to that too, when there is this embrace of a certain lifestyle that one truly desires within the heart, then all of a sudden this, I, this understanding of spiritual warfare is rejected and rejected full force, along with a whole host of other uh, beliefs of, of being, that go along with being Catholic. And uh, because it's the only way, I, I think, to remain where one is, you have to say you have to embrace this idea that human beings are, you know, either God takes care of other things uh, and you're really this dung heap covered with snow kind of thing. Uh, and because it releases you from any risk responsibility and the, the voice of conscience and uh, the call to engage in this kind of synergistic relationship that we God gives us out of his abundance, his love and his grace in order that we might embrace it and engage in this spiritual warfare. And so if we're not going to live that, you know, and yet there is enough awareness within us as you said, that being Catholic is hard, it's tough, you know, and so if you have enough awareness, though, in order to swing away from embracing what is hard or tough, you have to be astute to sort of create this whole other worldview for yourself that allows you to step out of that battle. And then you know, it's often, you know, you've, you often hear it say that those who are the greatest cr critics of Catholicism are, are ex-Catholics. <laughs> and I, I think there's a reason for that, not only because there can, are a whole lot of problems within the church and often people get wounded by the church, but I think part of it is this, what you spoke about here, <clears throat> excuse me, and what we read, that it offers everything. You know, what we are offered and, you know, in terms of the life of grace is extraordinary. And again, when I was reading, you know, about what some of these saints were saying about the, the Jesus prayer and even the name of the Lord himself, what takes place internally, given the fact, the fact that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, it's overwhelmingly beautiful. And so to move away from that, what violence one must do to one's own heart and one's own understanding and in order to find a place 
uh, to live outside of that. And, you know, this is why I think it's important for confessors, spiritual directors uh, to be cognizant of the difficulty of the battle and to encourage people within it that it's not only uh, the, the nature, true nature of things, but that, that that battle, that warfare, as difficult as it is, is really a, a sign of one striving to, to walk the narrow way. And so not to become discouraged that the desire for God and the striving speaks of our faith more than success in our own mind, whatever that would look like spiritually. You know, a repentant soul, one again, who rise, falls and rises every day in the eyes of God is going to be pleasing because it's uh, again, engaging in the spiritual warfare. Part of that spiritual warfare is cultivating the spirit of repentance, a constant turning toward God. And, you know, I think when we turn the life of faith into this kind of perfectionism too, can have this effect, you know, then, you know, all of a sudden when we aren't meeting what in our own mind that should look like, you know, it becomes very difficult to uh, cultivate a repentant spirit that acknowledges one's own poverty because the breakdown of that perf perfection you know, throws a person into a kind of shame or conf confusion. You know, it's such a blow to self-esteem. And, you know, for the Catholic and for somebody engaged in the spiritual warfare, one has to be humble. Understanding who it is that we are warring against and the nature of that warfare. These are the best things I've ever read about the about spiritual warfare far and above and it's not an easy thing for me to say I mean uh, I love Climacus and Cassian and and you know it's but what we've read what we're reading here in this hypothesis I think really brings home something that is eye-opening and again forces us to search our, our souls both to figure out where our hearts are, but if we are, we really see and understand the grace of God and, you know, in such a way that allows us to remain in that battle, even when we find ourselves besieged. So this hypothesis is worth reading very deeply. Okay, so it's 8.40, so why don't we stop there here for the evening and, uh, We'll finish up with, I don't think we finished this. Did we, we didn't finish the one on Ephraim, but we'll pick up with him next time. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.